So once again, we'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and then Revelation 19, verses 6 through 9. So we'll start with the 1 Corinthians passage. This is 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 through 20. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the raise the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And then the other verses from Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take your seats. Thanks so much, Betsy. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be with you. For those of you who are new, joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve. And uh, regardless of where you are in your spiritual journey, if you've been coming to church for a long time or somebody dragged you here uh, this afternoon, we're, we're really glad that you're, that you're with us. And so what we're doing this fall is we are walking through a series titled The Image of God Becoming Fully Human. And what we've seen over the last month or so, and, and I hope those of you who have been coming have started to catch this, is that the fact that you are made in God's image, uh, it shouldn't just, and your neighbor is made in God's image, this shouldn't just be a fact that we know in theory, like 5 plus 5 is 10, but it should be a lens through which we view all of life through and ourselves through and other people. And so if we want to live in love as Jesus does, then we need to think through this category of the image of God. And so we spent a while unpacking what that means. And then last week we looked at fundamental to being made in God's image is the fact that we are relational beings. So as a dolphin finds life when it's in the water, right? So we find life when we are in friendship and in relationship. And so today, as the corollary to that, we're looking at the fact that our sexuality images God. You say, that sounds weird. Like, how does sexuality image God? Uh, but it does, and, and it's profound. And so as we move into this, I don't know if, if you have experience hearing church teaching on this, right? If maybe you have never before, maybe you have. Uh, a memory that sticks out to me from hearing church teaching on this is when I was in high school, and one of my best friends, I really wanted him to know Jesus, so I was always even inviting him to church, and so forth. And one day, he just out of nowhere, he goes, hey, Steve, I'd love to come to church with you. I was like, sweet. So I take him to church. I was like, my youth pastor will take care of the rest. And I mean, what proceeded was a 
like essentially a 45-minute beatdown on why if you aren't following the Bible's sexual ethic, you should feel ashamed and condemned. And we walk out of there, and, you know, he had a girlfriend, and they did what high school boyfriends and girlfriends do. And we get to our cars, and we kind of look at each other, and he's like, well, see you later. And, like, just what he didn't say, but I could see it on his face, was he was basically asking, is there any hope for me here? And so that's not what we should be experiencing today, okay? On the other hand, I think we get in trouble when we don't look at what Jesus teaches about sexuality. And uh, what I mean by this is, so there's two books that have been written in this last year alone, uh, one by Christine Emba and the other by Louise Perry. So neither of these women are Christians, to my knowledge. Uh, one is called Rethinking Sex, and the other is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution. And essentially, the thread that runs through both of these books is, like, their, their thesis is that, you know, since the sexual revolution, which was responding to some things that probably needed to be changed, where now the modern ethic, you know, in a broad brush you could summarize is we should all just be liberated to live sexually as we please as long as all the parties involved are consenting. And they, they say that while, you know, the, the, the media and songs and people on social media will paint the picture that everybody's, you know, just fulfilled and happy living according to this ethic, when they get on the ground with real people, uh, the story looks very different. And they find that there's profound disillusionment uh, with people and that this, uh, that this ethic, where it's, it's mainly just about consent, is particularly harmful toward women. And so I, I commend either of these books to you, um, if you have the stomach to read some of the stories, especially in the case against the sexual revolution. There's some pretty, pretty vivid ones in there, um, but, but I think they are important reads, and they're, they're an important voice in our culture, okay? So we do need to talk about it, um, and as I heard the other day, and I agree, it is pastorally irresponsible of the leaders here to not talk about this, uh, because it's everywhere. And so just as we head into this, you know, know that from my perspective, I mean, this is a subject that I read about and talk with other people about maybe more than any other subject, just because as a pastor, this subject to me isn't about ideas or debates, but this is about real people, real people with longings and hurts and experiences and hopes. And so, I mean, it didn't take me long writing this this week to realize that, you know, just the profound limitations of language and, and the complexity of these situations. So I'm not going to be able to address every single thing in here. Um, my aim is just to, you know, we're in a Christian church, we follow Jesus. I just want to show you what Jesus gives us the framework for sexuality. Uh, and then from there, we can use that to parse through like a lot of the other questions. And so also if, you know, there's going to be a lot of things probably that we don't get to here. Maybe there's some curiosity that you have or confusion or worry that you have. Just please let, let this be one part of an ongoing dialogue that we have. Okay, so as we jump in here, ending with my preambles, I want you to just ask yourself this question. What is my vision for sexuality and marriage, and how did I get this view? What is my vision for sexuality? You ever thought about that? Like, why do you hold it? Where did you get it from? I, I don't think a lot of us really slow down long enough to think about the voices that shaped the beliefs that we hold. Okay, so what, what is your view and, and why do you hold it? And so what we'll do is, for our outline today, is first we'll look at two prominent visions the, the world gives for sexuality and marriage. Number two, we'll look at the better vision uh, that Jesus gives. And then number three, we'll draw out some applications. Okay, so first, what are two visions that the world presents us with? 
Uh, uh, number two, what's the better vision Jesus gives? And then number three, what are some applications we can draw out? All right, so first, uh, number one, two visions the world gives us. So if you have your Bible with you, uh, uh, encourage you to open it up. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It's the, it's the very next verse after the, um, the, this, the portion that was read. I believe the verse will also be up on the screen. So 1 Corinthians 1, uh, chapter 7, verse 1 says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So this letter, it's a correspondence between Paul and the church at Corinth. And the Corinthians had written to Paul a letter. And in the letter, they're asking him about a, this cultural ethic that was um, prominent, like where they lived in Hellenistic society. And this is a, this, it is not good for a man to have sexual relations with a woman. This comes from a view of the world, a platonic view that viewed the body as bad and the soul as good. So you could basically put in layman's terms, what this quote is saying is sex is impure. Sex is dirty. And, and today, this view is often taught, right, but now often not in the broader culture outside the church, but often inside the church. And so we'll call this view the distorted church view. And if, if you've been shaped by this view, or if you haven't been shaped by the, this view, then I guarantee you somebody you know has been. Okay, so let's just look at some examples of, like, what are some of the things included here that you or close friends of yours have been shaped by when it comes to sexuality, and one would be, I mean, similar to what Paul's getting at here, is that sex is the unforgivable sin. Okay, so, all right, if you struggle with pride or materialism or if you have an anger problem, yeah, like, you know, like, we're all works in progress, that's okay. But if you step outside of what the scriptures say about sex, right, if you have sex outside of marriage, now suddenly you're going to be maybe cast out or at best looked at with greater condemnation than if you wrestle with, with other things. Um, this view was often particularly directed toward women, where there was this message of if you don't save yourself for marriage, right, then you're impure, and like what, some of the language I'm going to use is pretty vivid, um, but, or it may be for some people, but, you know, who's going to want to marry you, right, if you've already been with somebody sexually? This is nowhere in the Bible, okay? And the, the flip side of this would be if sex is the unforgivable sin, then a, then a flip side you would hear is this kind of sexual prosperity gospel, where if you don't have sex until marriage, then God is going to bless you, and you're going to start floating six inches off the ground and have nothing but sexual thrills and orgiastical bliss, you know, with your, with your spouse, and this just isn't true, and so many couples I know, and um, if I'm, you know, Kelsey said it's okay to share some stuff. Kelsey and me were really shaped by this view, too, and a lot of couples find themselves set, not all, but some for profound um, disappointment at best when they get married and it doesn't work like that and now it's awkward and one person feels really insecure and the other person's getting really frustrated and this is just profoundly damaging and, and nowhere do we see this in scripture. So that would be one, one view, this distorted church view. Uh, another thread within this bucket you could say is uh, men want sex, women don't. Okay, so women, you just need to know that a man you're with is going to struggle with lust. He basically just wants to get with you sexually, and it's your job to put up the boundaries. Um, there was a best-selling book that was written in the 2000s where and there were surveys done on uh, 20,000 women, I believe, where they were commenting on this. Most of all of them had read it. And in the book, there was this line that said, if you're married and your, your husband is typical, then he has a need that you don't have. Yeah. So what does this do to both men and women? If you keep telling a man 
all you want is sex, you're just a big ball of lust, he's going to begin to believe that, okay? And then there are tons of stories about, and then when he gets married, he'll often tend to just view his wife as an instrument for his physical urges, right? Profoundly damaging. And it's probably worse for women, right? Because what it says is that your job in a relationship is you need to be the boundary setter. Like, the man shouldn't have any responsibility. It's on you to put up boundaries. And if you cross a line, you went further than you wanted to go, it's your fault. Okay, or what about for women who have an equal or higher sex drive than, than their husband? Suddenly they feel like, oh, is there something wrong with me? Is there something weird with me? Even though research would say roughly 40% of marriages, the, the woman has at, at least equal to or greater the drive of the husband. And then also, and, and, and please hear me uh, with all the sensitivity in the world, especially if you're a victim of abuse. You need to know it is not your fault. Okay, in a world where in the church, outside the church, women are told if something happens, you shouldn't have been at that party, you shouldn't have been wearing that, you should have been more careful, it's not your fault. Okay, and God weeps with you, and he will bring justice to the situation. Okay, so sex is the unforgivable sin. Often it's more of a thing that men want, women don't. Number three, if you're gay, then you're beyond the pale. Okay, so if you're gay, you're not welcome here. You're worse than the rest of us. You're somebody who maybe I want to pity, but not someone I want to sit next to. And if that is you, I am so sorry if you've ever heard that from anyone, but especially in the church, because this is nothing Jesus said, nor would say. It's nothing Paul said, right? And he wrote most of the letters in the New Testament. Uh, in fact, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 1, he, he mentions homosexuality, and then right after he goes, but I need, I'm among the foremost who need Jesus. Meaning what he's saying is if there's no hope for gay people, then there's no hope for me. Right? And there's no hope for, for the rest of us. And so if that is, you know that God desires intimacy with you, right? He has a purpose for you, and your sexuality matters to God. So that's, you could say, distorted church view. It's affected a lot of us. What's another view that's impacted us? Well, let's go back to the passage in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, there's so much in here, but just given the nature of the subject, we're just going to kind of touch on the high point. So uh, look at verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 6, where Paul puts in, you should see quotes, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So this is another proverb in Hellenistic society. And this view essentially paraphrase is saying all appetites are equal. Okay, so you get hungry, you eat food. You want sex, you have sex. Okay, so this is another view that's pretty common in society. And to paint in a broad brush, this is um, pretty common in more progressive circles, you know, but it is elsewhere. And so let's look at some viewpoints that are taught under, under this umbrella. Okay, so the first one, essentially, as we just said, as we, as we think about what, what is the purpose of sex, what's the, what's the vision for it if there is one, and the first would be just sex is mainly just an appetite. You know, so you may have thought or, or heard something to the effect of, you know, like, why do people care what two consenting adults are doing in the privacy of their own bedroom, right? Sex is, it's just an appetite, okay? It's just a physical urge. If you want to have sex, you have sex. And 
I just, I want to challenge you. Do we really believe that? That it's just a, a physical desire that we have. And uh, here, Louise Perry, in her book, The Case Against the, the Sexual Revolution, she's, she's talking, and she's um, talking as a self-professed feminist, uh, a post-liberal feminist, if you know your categories. And she talks about how, like, in, in large part, post-sexual revolution, we've tried, she, she, she refers to it as sexual disenchantment, where we've tried to remove, like, any sense of the sacred or the fact that there might be anything special or transcendent out of sexuality, um, you know, maybe because we, we don't want people to, to, to police it, or just for a number of reasons, right? We remove the, the special nature from it. And uh, here's what she says as she's talking about this, this idea that sex is basically just something you do with your body. And she writes, uh, The outpouring of rage during Me Too was evidence of a sexual culture that wasn't working for women. The stories that came out included a lot of women who described sexual encounters that were technically consensual, but nevertheless left, the, left them feeling terrible because they were asked to treat as meaningless something they felt to be meaningful. And then, so she goes on to say, there's this cognitive dissonance that I'm seeing, this is her talking, there's this cognitive dissonance I'm seeing in our culture. On the one hand, liberal feminists are saying, like, why, why is it a big deal? It's, it's just a physical thing. But on the other hand, you see, you see the same people become immediately enraged when Harvey Weinstein, for example, offers women career opportunities in exchange for sexual favors. So he's like, on the one hand, they're saying, you know, they'll say slogans like, sex work, it's just work, right? But then, but then when Harvey Weinstein tries to basically make it work, there's, there's rage. And then she says, there was an intuitive recognition that asking for sex from an employee is not at all the same as asking them to do overtime or make coffee. Okay, so sex is just an appetite. There's no inherent specialness. But as she would say, you know, do we, do we really believe that? Okay, so that would be one view. The other view in this, in this bucket would be that your, your sexuality is your identity. Okay, so your sexuality, your sexual desires, they are the deepest part of who you are. And if you can't express those desires, if you can't be in a relationship where you get to fulfill those desires, then you aren't living a full life. And it would be wrong for anyone to try to impose a grid on you about what you should do with your sexuality, even though this itself is a grid. And just, so this view, right, your sexuality is your identity. I mean, not only is it misleading, but think about what does that say to people, A, who either have a checkered sexual past, your sexuality is your identity, but two, what does it tell people who want a partner and don't have one? Okay, basically, what it says is you're subhuman. Okay, you can't live a full life. Sorry, living a full life is basically just for the the beautiful and and the captivating. And so, note the contradiction between these two. Right, on the one hand, sex doesn't really matter that much. Number two, but sex is everything. Okay, this, this Christine Emba talks about this in her book. This just speaks to the a profound confusion in our culture uh, surrounding sexuality. And so let's go back to our original question. What is your vision for sexuality, and where did you get that view? And just something to note about this view, particularly B, your sexuality is your identity. Just read history, and this view 
largely comes out of a predominantly Western white male viewpoint. Okay, starting mainly with Rousseau, then moving through Hegel, Marx, and especially Freud. Okay, that's where, that's where the genesis of it is. And it also shares the same root as uh, white colonialist thought, which basically says that my desires are paramount and I should be able to bend reality to shape my wants and my pleasures. So just something that you should be aware of with, with this view right, that we so often hear about where it comes from. Okay, so that, that's, these are two visions the world gives, right? Distorted church view and then uh, Western view. So what does Jesus give us? Okay, does he give us a better vision? Um, I believe he does give us a better vision. I hope for those of you who don't believe he does, maybe for those of you who believe he does, but you're not sure why, hopefully you can see it, and then maybe those of you who are like, no, he definitely doesn't. I just hope you begin to see some of the grandeur and beauty that, that he offers you here. Okay, so let's look at, like, what is Jesus's vision? And let's start by doing a thought experiment. So just ask yourself the question, um, probably especially if you've been going to church for a long time, but everybody's included. So just ask yourself, what do I think the purpose of sex and marriage is for? Just answer that in your head. Like, what is the purpose of sex and marriage? And I think most people in the church, and no shame if this is what you believe, I believe this for a really long time, uh, I think most people would answer something to the effect of marriages for when I find somebody that I love and I want to commit my life to them, and then sex is a way that I express my love for that person. Something to that effect. Yes, but dangerously incomplete. Why? Because note that the, the end, the terminus of that view is yourself. Right? So that the purpose of sex is me or me and my partner. Right? The purpose of marriage is for me to be with someone that I love. It's essentially about nothing outside of yourself. Again, not that those are bad things. Like, goodness, I, I, I hope that you marry someone you want to commit the rest of your life to, right? But it's, but it's incomplete. And so what, what is the, the ultimate, the full purpose of sex and marriage? And so now we get back to the theme of our series, that you are made to image God, which means that as an image bearer, everything you do is meant to point to a higher truth. Okay, this is a, I mean, it's a completely different way of seeing the world, okay, but all human beings, right, particularly followers of Jesus, everything you do is supposed to point to a higher truth, and so it should be for sex and marriage, and so what is the higher truth or deeper reality that sex and marriage point to? And so you heard read the, the scripture passage in Revelation 19, where it's talking about the great marriage supper when Jesus renews the world. And you see there in verse 7, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, that's all the people who know Jesus, the bride has made herself ready. Okay, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this is a picture of, at the end of things, when God unites heaven and earth, okay, and no more tears, perfect justice, and all those who know Jesus will be finally fully intimate with God. Right, this is the end of history. And now let's think about this. The very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, begins with the marriage a marriage of a man and a woman, Adam and Eve in a garden. In a book, if you have the very beginning and the ends, the book ends, 
pointing to the same picture, that should tell you something. Okay, that means there's something profoundly important about its message and about everything in the middle. Okay, so it begins with marriage, with a man and a woman, and then as you move through the, through the scriptures, you see, you see this entire thread. So all throughout the Old Testament, uh, God uses a number of metaphors to describe himself, but a prominent one is he is the faithful spouse, right? And his bride, his people, who often just want nothing to do with him, they're indifferent to him, he continues to commit to them. And then you get to the Gospels when Jesus, God himself, shows up on the scene. And the first miracle that Jesus does in John chapter 2 is he turns water into wine at a wedding. If he wants to show the world what he's about, why not raise Lazarus from the dead? Power. You know, why not feed the 5,000? Mercy. Is he about, right, defeating death and taking care of the poor? Yes. But the first miracle he chooses is changing water to wine at a wedding. Okay, and then in Matthew 19, he's asked a question about marriage, and in response he says, he points back to Genesis, and he says, don't you know that in the beginning God made them male and female, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Okay, a lot of people, you hear things like Jesus never really talked about sex and marriage. He does. He does all the time. And here he's defining marriage as between a man and a woman, right, in an exclusive relationship. And then he repeatedly refers to himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. And so what is Jesus getting at? He's saying that the higher truth, the deeper reality that sex and marriage is supposed to to point to is it's my commitment to you. The fact that I, I desire intimacy with you, the fact that I mainly don't want to relate to you as a king relates to subjects, you know, authority, although he is our Lord, but with all the intimacy and pleasure and joy in the way that a spouse relates to a spouse. And that is to be the picture that marriage points to. Okay, and when we forget, right, and here I, I'm mainly talking with belie- to, to believers, right, when we forget that this is what marriage is supposed to point to, that's when things fall apart. I don't know if you guys have seen Zoolander. Um, how many of you have seen Zoolander? Okay, all right, enough, right? So there, there is that scene, right, where I think it's toward the end. I haven't seen it in a really long time, so I'm probably going to botch the quote, but uh, Ben Stiller's character, Zoolander, you know, he wants to build the, the, the Derek Zoolander Center for kids who can't read good and want to do other cool stuff good too, something like that, right? And so they, they build a model of the center, right? And when they unveil it, he gets infuriated. <laughs> He's like, what, is this a school for ants? He's like, how are the kids going to learn how to read if they can't even fit inside the building? You know, it's like, it needs to be at least three times bigger or something like that. You know, he smashed. What was going on there? He mistook the model, right, for the thing itself, right? And so we, we get into trouble when we look at marriage, which is supposed to be the model, and mistake it for the substance itself, the love relationship that Jesus offers you. And so now let's look at, like, why does Jesus talk about marriage in, in the design that he does. Okay, why does he say that marriage should be permanent? Why, why does he say that, that sex should be within the context of a permanent covenant of marriage? Because Jesus never leaves us. Okay, why does he say that sex should be the, in the context of an exclusive relationship, and a, a monogamous relationship? Because Jesus never betrays us, right? He has an exclusive love with us. Why does he say that marriage should be between male and female? Because this represents a unity across difference that brings forth life. Just like when Jesus, who's very different than us, unites himself to us. Okay, now there's unity and diversity, but it produces life in us, right? When we become a new creation. So man and woman, right? At least, and yes, there does it happen sometimes where people who want to get pregnant can't, but the natural pattern is when man and woman come together, unity and diversity, it produces life. 
okay, why should sex be more about self-sacrifice and service rather than self-expression and self-fulfillment? Because that's how Jesus loves us, right? He loves you personally, expensively, sacrificially. And so just two reflections on this and and why Jesus sets up sex and marriage in, in the way he does. And the first would be what Jesus is doing by putting sex in the context of a permanent covenant. What he's one of the things he's trying to do, or one of the things that he is doing, it doesn't always happen in our world, but reducing the pull of our tendency to treat people as objects rather than persons. Okay, we're, I mean, by default, we're tend to, we're going to tend to want to use sex, right, more for self-gain, more about my happiness, more about my pleasure, rather than treating you as a person to be known and loved rather than an instrument to be used. And Jesus would say, like, what is the best context to treat someone as a person and not a thing. And he would say marriage, because it's in marriage, the, when the act of sex happens, yes, is it pleasurable? Yes, he, d- he designed it that way. Yes, does it, is it for procreation? Yes. But it, it's a way of saying, I'm doing now with my body what I've already promised to do for you with my words and with my life. Okay, and so he wants, us, he wants to give us a context that's powerful enough for the act. Uh, just this past week, I had some friends over, and we did a fire pit outside. And what would have happened if, as we were in the middle of the fire pit, one of the guys was like, hey, you know, your living room couches actually looks way more comfortable. Can we just carry the fire pit inside and put it in the living room? You know, what would have happened? Kelsey would have been very upset with me, <laughs> along with all of our neighbors, right, whose homes would have burned down. What's go- like, a fire is a good thing, right, but in its proper context. And that's what Jesus is saying about sex as well, right? So he's setting up a context to treat people as persons. But number two, and hopefully especially for those of you who have often been troubled, right, or really bothered by Jesus' teaching on sex, hopefully this, this at least explains why Christians are so weird when it comes to sexuality, <laughs> right? Because these, these aren't just like arbitrary things, um, but just if, so if you hold a more of a modern secular view that more or less has something to the effect of we came from nothing, you know, impersonal forces, we end in oblivion, it would make sense that by and large our culture has the view about sex that it does. It just, that makes sense, right? If we're essenceless people, okay, that can kind of construct an identity as we please, and that would, that would make sense. But if, just, if you believe that you're made by a God of love, Right, and the purpose of your life is to image him with sacrificial love for the good of neighbor, and your life is going to end in a new earth. Just you, you pair those two views together, and it shouldn't be surprising, followers of Jesus, that you have a different view. Okay, now just, I mean, topic for another day, do I think we should be going out and yelling at everybody else for what they're doing? No. Okay, but if you know Jesus, this is the design that he, that he calls you into. Okay, so that's, that's Jesus' vision, that the purpose is to point to a deeper reality, a higher truth, namely, which is his love for you and how he loves you, okay? So now let's just, let's draw out some applications, which are vast and many, but here are a few, which, which I hope you find at, at least helpful or at least a springboard for future conversations. So first, uh, marrieds, okay? Um, marrieds here who... You know Jesus. Uh, the, in light of this, okay, what sex and marriage is supposed to be for, the first challenge would be to take your marriage very seriously, 
to take your marriage very seriously. And here's what I mean. There's a, uh, and, and sorry if some of these things are, are foreign to you, but just so many people I've talked to, there's this unspoken belief, especially with people who've grown up in the church, where it's like if you're a heterosexual in marriage, suddenly now like you don't have to worry about sin or anything that Jesus said because like you're good. And that's just not true. Like, one of the things I love and appreciate about Jesus is he's so egalitarian when it comes to sex, and he puts all of us in the same boat, regardless of orientation, regardless of if we're single or married. Okay, he challenges all of us to use sex as a means for whole life giving rather than self-gain. And so if, if you're married, um, just something, I don't know how many people believe this in our church, but I think something I heard someone say recently that I respect, he made the comment, I, I think he's right, that the biggest problem the church has when it comes to the threat to this, to sexuality and how it images uh, Christ's love for us is not combative members of the LGBTQ community. It's heterosexual pornography and all the heterosexual marriages in the church that are either divorcing or heading toward divorce. And so no, I do not say this with any condemnation but it is a plea to you, okay, to grab hold of the grace of Jesus, right, and bring your, bring trusted members in your community alongside you to, to help you love your spouse, right, because it, it's so easy to not do it in the way that Jesus talks about, where you're, everything about what you do, right, in and outside of the bedroom is not about your pleasure and your preferences and your perspective, but doing, saying, what Everything I do, I want to help you know and love Jesus, and, I, and I'm here for you, and I want to treat you as a, as a full person and continue to give my life to you. And, and so, so please take your marriage so seriously if you're here, and don't just assume, all right, we're man, women in marriage, so we're good. I mean, Kelsey and I had to learn for, and we're still learning, like what it actually means to use sexual intimacy, among other things, as a means that's way more about how am I treating you as a full person and not just pleasing myself in some way, okay? That would be the first thing. Take your marriage very seriously. The second challenge would be, and this sounds contradictory, hold your marriage lightly. Hold your marriage lightly. In Matthew 22, Jesus says something surprising. He's asked about marriage again. Jesus always surprises us, and he says, he basically says that, you know, don't you know that in the new earth, man and woman won't be given to each other in marriage? There's not going to be marriage in the new earth. Why? Because in the new earth, the substance that human marriages point to, right, will be there. And so human marriages will dissolve. And we'll just be left with uh, familial and, and friendship love in the church as we're fully intimate and in communion with God. And so because of that, there should be a sense where you can hold your marriage more lightly because I might offend some people, but it's Jesus. You can, you can read him say it. Like, you're not going to be married to your spouse in heaven, right? Is marriage a good thing? Yes, right? And I, will there, I'm, this is Steve speculating, right? Will there still be a special relationship with that person? My speculation is yes, okay? But because marriage is not meant to be ultimate, but to point you to the one who is ultimate, you should hold your marriage very lightly. And here's just one practical way that I think you can do this. And it would be, is it so clear when people look at your marriage that your marriage isn't about just like the other person satisfying all of your needs, but it's more about how you guys are imaging and loving Jesus together. 
right? And out of that, loving other people. And I think one of the best ways that, that marrieds can do this, we talked about it a little bit last week, is how marrieds invite singles into the rhythms of their life. Because often um, in the name of protecting marriage, right? Mar- marriage? Married couples will sacrifice inviting singles in just to the normal rhythms of their life, right? At the altar of I'm protecting my marriage. And so just like what are ways that you can invite singles just into your dinner hour? Yes, it's crazy when the kids are screaming and you're trying to get them to bed, right? Or, or you're stressed, but what is it, how can you invite them in? What does it look like to invite them into your vacations, Right? Should it be assumed that holidays and vacations are just about your marriage? Or is it a way that you can invite someone in who's lonely? Maybe they're single or maybe they're lonely in a marriage. I think that, that's a way that we can show that our marriage ultimately isn't about ourself, right? but it's about Jesus. So those are some challenges to, to married couples. Number two application here is Jesus' vision for, sexual, for sex and marriage is good news for everybody. Okay, first, it's good news for marrieds because, as hopefully you've been saying, it protects you from the disillusionment that your spouse can, full, can and should fulfill you. Right? And actually should give you the expectation that your marriage will disappoint you because it's supposed to point you to the one who does fulfill your longings. And for those who are single, for those who are in the LGBTQ community and all of the above, why, the, why Jesus is such good news is because what he does is he, he frees you from just the the narrative that's continually placed before you that you have to have sex and romance to be happy. Okay, and he gives you something far greater. So let's go back to that graphic we had earlier about your sexuality is your your identity. So what Jesus gets at in his teaching is just imagine if your identity was not your sexuality fully, but what if it was bigger? You bring that up. What if there's a lot more to you than your sexuality? Your sexuality still matters, very much so. But what if it is one part of who you are, and if you can bring up the next person, and the essence of who you are isn't your sexuality and if you're in a relationship or not, but the essence of who you are is that God made you in his image. You are redeemed. You're his friend. You're adopted. You're his workmanship. You're given a purpose. You're united with Jesus. And then perhaps what all of us want when it comes to sexuality is that you're known and loved. Okay, for those of you who have been even in the best of friendships or romantic relationships, has that person fully fulfilled the longings of your heart? And so it would be one thing if Jesus says, you know what? The biggest meaning in life is to be in a sexual relationship. Oh, but if you're not in a marriage between a man and a woman, sorry, you can't have that. That's not what Jesus says. He says marriage is a gift. It reflects God in certain ways. And singleness is a gift because of how it images God. We'll get there in a second. And so on this, and you're known and loved by the Lord who made you. And so there's this story in John, in John chapter 4 where Jesus meets this woman at the well, and she is a, she's a gendered, ethnic, and sexual minority. And he sits down with her, and no one else really wanted much to do with her in the town. And I just, he, and so her situation was she looked to men and romance for fulfillment. 
and she was on her, I, I believe it was her fifth marriage, and she was currently living with a guy who wasn't her husband, and I just, I love Jesus because on the one hand, he didn't, he didn't just sit down and say, oh, like, whatever, you know, you do you, but he met her with such warmth and compassion, and essentially what he says is, what you're looking for in sex and romance can only be found in me, right? So you looking for fulfillment in men, it, it, it's like a child staring at a, a little toy castle when he's offered Disney World, and he's just choosing not to go. And he's saying, and then he, the, the dialogue goes, he sees all of her. He knows her whole history, sexual and, and elsewhere. He sees her, he knows her, and then he loves her to the stars, and he commits himself to her, and it changed her world. And she ran into her town, and she said, you have to come meet this man who told me everything I ever did. There's this uh, movie that was made in um, 91 called The Fisher King with the goat, Robin Williams. And he plays Perry, right, this retired uh, war vet who's come back from Vietnam. And he confesses his love to Lydia, this awkward and shy store worker. And he's loved her for a long time, and they have this date. And, but at the end of the day, it goes really well. And Lydia gets scared because she's thinking, oh my gosh, if he really knows me, like all the way down, he's going to reject me. So she tries to run away. And then Robin Williams, as she's running away down the street, he blurts out, I love you. And then she comes back and she's like, what? And he goes, and not just from tonight. I've known you for a long time. I know that you come out from work and fight your way out that door. You get pushed back in and then you come back out. It's a good day if you stop and get that romance novel at that store. I know on Wednesdays you go to that dim sum parlor, and I know that you get a jawbreaker before you go back into work, and I know you hate your job and you don't have many friends. Sometimes you feel uncoordinated, and you don't feel as wonderful as everybody else. Feeling as alone and separate as you feel you are, I love you. I love you. I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. I'd be knocked out if I could just have that first kiss. I won't be distant. I'll come back in the morning and I'll call you if you let me. And then there's a pause and she leans toward him and she, she puts her hand on his face in, in disbelief and she goes, you're real, aren't you? Why did she respond this way? Because to be seen like that, your idiosyncrasies and hidden details and all, and loved, loved like that for a long time, it seems unreal. It seems otherworldly because it is otherworldly. And that's how Jesus loves you. And you may be sitting here and you're thinking like, wow, he kind of like puts these parameters around sex and marriage. It's asking me to curtail some of my freedom. When has God ever given up his freedom? Hasn't he? Okay, he's the only God who's willing to let himself be hung on that. Because he also told you, I've loved you for a very long time. And I'll take all of your shame and forgive you full and free and bring you into my kingdom. Where there will come a day where you will never long for intimacy. Because you'll have it in its fullest sense. And so does your sexuality image God? Yes, it images God if you're married because it points to the one who loves you permanently, exclusively, sacrificially, wholly. If you're single, your sexuality images God. Why? Because 
your life, right? And think about sexuality more holistically in terms of connection, right? That's ultimately about what sexuality is, wanting connection with another person. Your sexuality serves as a window into another dimension where you know that there is a love greater than any love that a man can have for a wife, right? Or a man for his mistress. And also you image God because you serve as a time warp, as it were, into the new earth when we finally see God and find our satisfaction in him. And that is a way that you can partake in the life of heaven in a way that marrieds don't and cannot. That's a, that's a, I don't know, I don't have any words for it other than you only find that in Jesus. Let's pray.